Antler Up, Episode 8. Jed Roberts. Let's go. Antler Up, Edmonton. The Elks are on the board. There it is. Antler Up, Edmonton. Touchdown, Elks. Cornelius will throw to the outside to Shy Ross. At the 10, to the 5. Antler Up, Edmonton. Touchdown, Elks. Welcome inside the Joey Moss suite here at the Brickfield and Commonwealth Stadium. And we're doing a first today on Antler Up. we got our first alumni. Jed Roberts joins us. Hey, Jed, thanks for coming over. Oh, thanks for having me. This is wonderful. I love being in the stadium, I love, and it's doubly special just being in the Joey Moss suite. You know, this is my first time in here, so I'm a little bit starry-eyed, so forgive me if I'm looking around with my eyes wide. What are your memories of Joey? Oh, man. Joey used to listen to James Bond show tunes, and uh, he would vacuum the locker room, and uh, he would sing along in, in, the, in the way that only Joey could. And, uh, yeah. You know, lots of happy memories, lots of uh, jokes and stuff. And he'd come in with his Luca Libra, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, man. He loved wrestling. And so to be in here, it's kind of cool. It's just uh, I wasn't expecting uh, the layout, the way they've got the pictures of him and stuff. So I'm I'm going down memory lane now as yeah. we do this. So this is cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, they did a pretty good job. It's pretty cool in here for sure. All right, uh, Jed, when you look up your resume with the Edmonton football team, first thing you see is special teams tackles. You are the, uh, the all-time record holder more than anybody else in franchise history. The thing I've learned about guys who get a lot of special teams tackles, and please don't take this the wrong way, but they're just a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to do what you do as a special teamer, to just pick a lane, run as fast as you can, as hard as you can, and try to crash into somebody, it is – Kind of a crazy way to make a living, isn't it? Yeah, you know what, though? I miss it. I still have dreams about it. You know, um, for years, I was the arrow, what they call the arrow on kickoff. And now, if you know anything about special teams, you're right. People that play it have to be a little bit unhinged. And I was certainly that when I played football. Uh, but as the arrow, I was right next to Sean Fleming for, you know, 11 years. And, and everyone formed their lanes off of me. So what that meant was I was the only one head up on the ball. And so I would always tell everybody in the huddle, meet me or beat me. You know, because one way or the other, we're all getting there to, you know, let's arrive there at the same time. So I had to be big enough to, to, to create some chaos uh, at, at the time of the collision, but I had to be quick enough and fast enough to, to beat everybody else down there because I'm running with receivers and defensive backs. And so I had a little bit of an uh, unusual skill set. You know, I was a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none type of guy, so I was pretty well-suited, I think, for special teams because I could do a little bit of everything pretty well, but nothing perfect. So basically, Sean kicked the ball and said, go get him. Yeah, he said, everybody formulates off jet. I was head up, and then anybody to the right of me kept the ball on their left shoulder. Anybody to the left of me kept the ball on their right shoulder. It's pretty simple. It's kind of frustrating because I'm watching them give up big returns here. I'm like, oh, it's so simple. Just keep the ball inside on your inside shoulder. So. 163 special teams tackles. Does one stand out? Um, Do you ever have that perfect hit, that perfect lane? Ooh, uh, yeah, I caught uh, Nick Mazzoli here in uh, Commonwealth Stadium, and uh, I remember he tried to zig when he should have zagged, and I caught him in the air, and I, you know, it was a perfect form tackle, and I took him down, and you know, we were just talking a little bit earlier about the big crowds we used to get in here, and uh, it was just like everybody just sort of drew a breath collectively, and then it all everybody left it, you know, let it out in unison. It was just, it was really cool, you know. Got up and put one finger up, yeah, you know. So for ten seconds, I was cool, and then everybody moved on to the next play. So here's something a lot of people probably don't realize about special teams tackles: is they hurt you too, right? 
Mm-hmm. You, guys yeah. get hurt making tackles. They guys, can. A lot of guys get hurt getting tackled, getting yeah. hit. But they it's, can. But you got to work really hard to get down there. You know, it's not like a regular defensive play where you know you go in your gap or your responsibility and then migrate to the play. Special teams, you're talking about a, an exchange of field position, 40, 40 yards typically. So after you've already run 40, 50, 60 yards in some cases, you've got to break down and make the tackle. So it's quite a bit of uh, – it's a lot more involved than people think. Uh, 163 tackles, as I mentioned. I think you're like 50 ahead of the next guy, right, or more uh, around that anyway. I think that's a record that's never going to be broken. It might because not be. Today's, today's yeah. careers are shorter, one-year contracts, yeah. guys move around more. I think it's safe to say that Jed Roberts will always have the special teams tackles. Well, I don't know. I mean, um, you may or may not realize this, but number three or number two is back with the team right now, Um, but he hasn't been playing. Um, The linebacker. Deion Lacey? Yes, Deion has quite a few. He's he's got the record for most in a season. I think he had 29 in one year. Yeah, and it might even be up around 30. But, yeah, uh, yeah, Deion's quite – I love watching him. You know, whenever he's in there, I'm like, yeah, you know, and I tell my boys, like, want to watch somebody to cover kick, watch Deion, you know, because he did the same thing when he was playing in the NFL. So, um, you know, it's a – it's, it's fun to watch, but yeah, you're right. We were talking about the one one year contracts and the movement of people from one team to the other. So when you say you know most franchise you know anything, it's really difficult nowadays to do that because of all the movement around the league. You know, it's not it's great for players being able to make more money elsewhere, but it's tough when you're talking about long time records like that. And I don't think anybody's going to play 13 years for one team anymore either. Yeah, it's really well, different. I mean, Calvin just did that. You know, he, yeah. he went to Calgary to end his career, but Calvin McCarty. And, and you know, those guys are, are outliers. You know, Mike Miller, and you know, he's in Winnipeg now. But um, now, you know, when you see a guy that's been playing anywhere over 10 years, typically they play for three, four, maybe sometimes five teams. You know? Yeah, if Mike would have stayed, he probably would have your record by now, right? Because he's the all-time leader. Oh, absolutely. Leader, and, so, you know, yeah. I'll, you may not know this, but I was the guest coach the rookie his rookie year. And I remember watching him, and we I took him and uh, a couple of other guys, and we did some Mike Cornell, I think is his name, yep. and uh, we worked on escapes. And uh, by that, I mean when somebody's trying to block you on punt, I was trying to teach him how to how to release one way or the other, and showing him a swim, showing him a swim. And he's like, wow, this is really cool, you know, nobody's ever – and I said, yeah, man, if you can perfect these, you'll, yeah. that'll – Increase they your toes. Had, in that era, they had a great group. Uh, it was it was Mike Miller, Mike Cornell, and Corbin Sharoon. Yep. And those three guys. Those guys were, were demons, dynamite, you know. Yeah. And those were the three guys I was working with. I was yeah. like, listen, come here, and we would work after every practice, and we would, I would teach them how to, you know, release off of blocks. Like you make sure you take your block, but then but the rules have changed now, right? Like you have to stay until the ball's kicked, whereas before you could take off early. So, yeah. and that's another reason why the record may never be broken because the game's different now. Yeah, so. for sure. Uh, all right. Uh, Let's uh, before we go back and talk about your career in green and gold. Let's talk about what are you doing now. What's uh, what's your day? Well, I work like as now? a mentor for at-risk youth in the inner city. I work for an agency. Um, it's something that I actually slid into while I was playing. Um, I started working out for an agency called Oak Hill Boys Ranch. Um, Neilon Green, quarterback in the late '90s. Yep. Eric Blunt is actually still there at Oak Hill Boys Ranch. Uh, Rio Wells. So there's a big group of us that were out there. Errol Martin. And um, a lot of us, I stayed there for 10 years, and then I moved on from there to other agencies, and, and I'm still doing the same thing. It's, it's really, uh, I get paid to hang out with kids, and I, I really do whistle while I work. You know, I take kids to appointments, and we go to the movies or whatever. I mean, if the kid wants to hang out with their friends, and they do that for the day. But it's actually, I mean, it's just, 
it, it's not an easy job because you know you're sometimes you're dealing with uh, a lot of trauma related stuff and um, lots of uh, you know at risk behaviors and and you know no, no day is ever the same you know and it's uh, it's something that I actually find comes pretty natural and easy for me um, you know being a bigger guy people. But you'd be surprised, you know. I've had some kids that are like, you know, I don't care how big you are, you know, we're going today. I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously rewarding work for you, um, yeah. or you wouldn't be doing it still, right? Um, you know, I, that was something that when I was playing, I had to look around, and my I was very lucky because my dad played in the, in the Canadian Football League for seven years. He was with the Ottawa Rough Riders. He won two Grey Cups in '68 and '69. And he told me that. He says, you know, you need to look around while you're playing and take a look at the landscape in the city. He says Edmonton is a, uh, a great community. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a small town disguised as a big city. Um, there's six degrees of separation from one person to the next at any given moment. And if you're willing to give back your time to the community, the community will, will embrace you. And you can parlay that into something that could be quite, you know, gratifying and so I wanted I've always been that person I had to feel like I was doing something meaningful you know I, I not to say that you know sales is not meaningful but that just wasn't my thing you know I tried it wasn't you know I worked in sporting goods selling sporting sporting equipments to schools and stuff and I liked it but at the end of the day I had to take I had to give people a discount so I could feel good about not ripping people off you know and so it's tough it's a tight it's a fine line right so but when I'm working with kids in care, uh, working with uh, kids that have trauma-related issues, I feel like I'm actually maybe helping them to make their, ba their day better and maybe keeping them safe. And that, to me, when I go to sleep at night, that, that makes me feel pretty good. So that's why I do it. It turns out, 1990, you mm -hmm. get cut by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Mm -hmm. uh, turned out, at the time, you're probably devastated, but yeah. uh, here we are, you know. Yeah. 30 years later, and you're at Edmonton, and yeah, my, and that's what my dad said. Well. My dad said it's a community-owned team, and I didn't really understand what he meant when he said that, right? Because I did. I I was born in Ottawa, moved away when I was about six or seven years old. Moved in with uh, my grandparents, my mom's parents, because uh, my dad and my mom split up when I was about six or seven years old, and um, I lived in Eastern Tennessee, and I played all my football in the U.S. So um, I'm an American-trained Canadian, so I'm kind of like that, you know, great white buffalo unicorn type of player, right, where I have the right birth certificate, but I have the training that, you know, I've, I remember being, we were talking before the broadcast about uh, being a kid and going to games. You know, I used to go Friday Night Lights, Oak Ridge High School, yeah. Wildcats, and 10,000 people, and the whole town would shut down, and we would all get a ball and play behind the end zone. And, uh, you know, football's religion down there, like hockey is up here, so... Uh, then I came back up here. I got a chance to play in Winnipeg because the head coach, Mike Riley, was my defensive coordinator at the University of Northern Colorado for one year. Mm -hmm. And then he went back up to Winnipeg. And so he got me in there, but I got hurt right away. I was uh, I aggravated a hamstring in injury in Texas running before you know, for conditioning before I came into training camp. And first play I was in, in practice, I was covering Robert Mims on a route, and I re-aggravated it, and then I rehabbed it. As soon as I rehabbed it, they let me go. And I was. I was devastated. And they wanted to uh, send me to Oklahoma City to play for a uh, minor league football team that they were hiding players down there. Uh, former Arizona State coach Daryl Rogers was the head coach there. Yeah. And so they were getting guys jobs. And then we were, uh, you know, you would play football and then you'd work in the Oklahoma heat. And I'd just come from Texas. I wasn't going back to that. So <laughs> I called every team. 
Uh, the first team to call me back was Edmonton, and then Bruce Lemmerman brought me in, and I've been here ever since. And it's been a wonderful ride. Like I, I tell people, and been, I've been trying to tell some of the guys that are here now, man. Like stay here. Like the the people love you here, man. Like if you put some time into the community, they'll reward you tenfold. And you're 20 years past retirement, right? Oh it's yeah, I love it. Strong. You know, I mean, yeah. come here, and it's just like coming home every time I come here. My oldest son learned how to walk in the alumni room. You know, when he was one year old. So um, yeah, it's a family affair. It's um, it's it's a labor of it's near to my heart, right? Like every time I come in here, it's just uh, comfortable, it's warm, and uh, it's just a place that I uh, I always know that I'm welcome. You know, I always feel like I'm coming back home every time I walk through the gates and come to a game, or even if I'm coming to Fan Day today, it was awesome to see a lot of the same people that come. And we do have our diehard fans, and you know, times are a little bit tough, and things are lean right now. But you know, every team goes through that from time to time. Uh, and I'm very optimistic that we have the leadership in place to to make our way through some of the, the challenges and stuff. You know, we have a lot of, a unique set of things that are sort of keeping us from, from being uh, competitive at this point. But I have a, I'm optimistic. I'm always I've always been an optimistic person, you know, and I don't think that uh, tough times don't last, but tough people do. Right. So um, we've got some really good people up on the top there that know uh, how to how to steer organizations through tough times, and I'm, I'm really happy with the, the work that Victor's doing behind the, the scenes. And uh, Chris Jones, everybody knows what he can do. You know, it's a bit of a mad scientist bringing in, you know, different people every day. It's just crazy, all the different personalities that come in. And I have faith that at some point he'll arrive at the right mix of guys. And, you know, when you're – like I remember we went through a rebuild in 98 after uh, we lost uh, the Western Final in Calgary, and we brought in uh, Nilon Green, and it was very similar to, it was eerily similar to what we're doing this year. Like, our aging dip defense had been gutted, and we didn't really even know who any, I didn't know anybody's name, you know. And um, it took us a year or two to kind of, because we went 6-12 and 12 that first year. Still made the playoffs, though. Never missed the playoffs while I was playing. Uh, but if it wasn't for Saskatchewan, you know, we would have. <laughs> Saskatchewan, we beat them three times that year. So, otherwise, we would have been, you know, three and whatever it is, 15. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be a tough, you know, turnaround. I think that I've been telling people that it'll get a little bit worse, I think, on the field before it gets better, you know, because you, you can't win in this league without a quarterback, you know. And then right now, unfortunately, you know, Trey Ford's hurt, and we're not really sure which guy's going to be the one that's kind of next man up. And, but, you know, Chris knows what he's doing, and I'm sure he's probably got some things going on and that we don't know about, you know. And, and uh, I know that he, everybody knows what a, a defensive genius he is. It takes a while for those guys to get comfortable enough to to know where they're supposed to be lining up, you know. I mean, in this last game, I know it was the tough score, but if you look at it closer, you see the kick returns that we gave up. You see the long play there where the quarter, corner wasn't in the right spot. I mean, it was just little the injuries, things, yeah. little things, yeah. things that you can, you know, if you correct those things, the game's not quite as, as lopsided as it was. I mean, it was close for a while, too, right? So, I mean, this is a young team, and they'll, they'll figure it out. So. All right, second half of Antler Up with Jed Roberts coming up in a moment. The Antler Up podcast is recorded in the Joey Moss Championship Suite. The Joey Moss Suite opened in 2022 to honor Joey, his great legacy, and to remember one of Edmonton's greatest heroes. The Joey Moss Suite is a great place to watch an Elks game from. To learn more about how to purchase the Joey Moss Championship Suite for an upcoming Elks game, email partnerships at goelks.com. 
After last Thursday's loss to the Calgary Stampeders, the Elks are now 1-4 and four this season. They'll be in Montreal for their next game, playing the Alouettes tomorrow night. Uh, the Owls so far are 1-3, and three, and they've had a very eventful week this past week with the changing at the head coach position with Danny Machocha taking over. Uh, next home game for the Elks is going to be against the two-time Grey Cup champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers. That game will go Friday, July 22nd on the Brickfield at Commonwealth Stadium. Uh, you can get all your ticket information at Ticketmaster or GoElks.com. First up, though, it's the Alouettes. Tomorrow night you can watch the game on TSN. You can listen to it on 630 Ched with myself and Dave K. Campbell, 4 o'clock for the Countdown to Kickoff show. 5.30 is game time for the Elks and the Alouettes. It's a logo that's synonymous with Canadian football excellence. 14 Grey Cups and counting. 52 Hall of Famers. For decades, we've proudly worn the green and gold into battle. Proud of who we play for. Proud of where we call home and proud to be part of a great tradition. The logo on our helmet meant doing things the right way. The Edmonton way. It needed no explanation. Take one look and you still know what it represents. Legends like Moon, Kepley, Gizmo, and Ray. Forever bonded by the double E. Two letters bridging a glorious past with an exciting future. It's time for the next chapter. It's time for the next Double E Dynasty. You just heard Jed Roberts' voice voicing the video when the Elks went to this here on their helmets. Yeah. How did that come about for you, and how did you enjoy doing that? Well, you know what? They asked me if I would, and it was really weird because I was like, never really thought of myself as being a voice actor, right? So they uh, they asked me about the idea of like, you know, lending my voice to uh, the helmet unveiling, and and I, okay, sure, I'd, and then it, it worked. It went out. It went a lot better than I thought it would because I practiced with my wife. You know, my wife gave me some pretty good feedback. She's like, yeah, don't do that. You can do this, but yeah, don't do that thing. You know that thing you do as with your mouth. Will. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> like, very, very brutally constructive feedback. So uh, I had a lot of fun with it, you know. And then I listen to it now, and I'm like, I don't really. It doesn't really sound like me. It's just, uh, but like, like I said, you know, it's a labor of love. So it was really cool. I mean, that's that's not something you get asked to do every day. I'm telling you, I watched it this morning. I get goosebumps watching it. Yeah, it still yeah. gives you the tinglys when you watch it. Still, yeah, it's. Uh, you know, and, and the fact that they asked me to do it was kind of cool because uh, I remember talking to Frank Morris and uh, Frank Anderson and, and uh, Roger Nelson and, and um, Jack Parker. And, you know, there was a relationship that we had. Like when I was playing, I was very familiar with the guys that came before me. And they were like very quick to kind of pull me inside and say, hey, listen, you know, like, you know, we've never missed the playoffs, right? And. That's not something we, you know what I mean? Yeah, us, it's eh? like, hey, we, we, we were worked really hard to kind of build this. Don't mess it up, you know? So, and that's that's something that I think, you know, we held each other accountable that way. Um, and like I said, it's a different game nowadays because you get, a, you know, kind of a turnstile approach to personnel with the one-year contracts. And, but I find that the teams that do well, the Calgary Stampeders, the 
the Saskatchewans, you know, the Winnipegs, they keep the same group of guys around within reason, right? I mean, you're always going to have your Kenny Lawler that priced himself out of that, you know, Certain four or whatever. Or so, yeah. And that's to be expected, or Andrew Harris or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm confident that we'll get back to that. It's tough, I know, for the average fan when they're looking at the lineup and they're like, who are these guys, right? And aside from the kids that are local, like David and Beard and, and Court, you know, we, which they've done a really good job of, like, bringing guys in from the community, which which I think is a real easy sell. But if you're not keeping the same group of guys around, it's pretty difficult for the local average fan to identify with what you're trying to put out there, you know. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, Métis heritage. Mm -hmm. When did you become aware of that? From what I understand, it was later in life that it – Yeah, so my, actually, I was always kind of aware of it. My dad uh, was – working for the Métis Association in Ontario and uh when I and my so my dad and my mom split up when I was really little and then I would only see my dad in the summer times and um there wasn't a lot of contact otherwise but then in the summertime I would drive up from Dallas or sorry Tennessee or Dallas depending on where what period of my life it was and we would go up to Canada, and I would spend from June till August with my dad. And then we would go on these big camping trips out to, I remember there was one we used to go to White River for a big Métis gathering. And, and I, I didn't really know a whole lot about that. Like, it was just, and I I was I didn't live that life, you know. It was, um, I lived with my mom, and she had her way of doing things. And then I went to my dad. I, mean, I got to be honest with you, my dad didn't really supervise me. So, you know, we were out there running around and the, the Métis gatherings. I think I had my first fist fight when I was like, you know, 10 or 11 years old. Some 15-year-old kid wanted to fight me, so I punched him and ran back to my dad's campsite. And then my stepmom tried to jump in and try to break it up, and she got punched in the face. And <laughs> So that wasn't really my life, right? So I just was trying to survive at these uh, gatherings when I was a kid. But uh, I learned a lot, you know, and I retained enough of it that when I came back here to uh, – to Alberta, to Canada, to play football. Um, when I started to get requests to go out to the different, uh, um, like to Drift Pile or go out, out to Muscatchee or, you know, even out to Cold Lake, uh, I had enough of the core memories to, to be to feel comfortable when I was going out to those communities. And, uh, I mean, they welcomed me with, with open arms, and I continue to do that to this day. So. Hmm. And you... Uh you work with Aboriginal kids a lot, or yeah, I've yeah I've worked with. Uh, Is that important? You know, to you? unfortunately, in in the in the uh, fosters care system and in the uh, like the the group home, the group care facilities I work in, unfortunately, the Indigenous kids the population is pretty well represented. You know, and that's something that we'd like to see change. Uh, there's various reasons why that is. You know, um, generational trauma. You know, lots of different uh, factors kind of figure into that, but. Um, and that's another thing, you know, I see sometimes when I'm looking at these kids, I see myself, you know, a little bit, you know, some of the struggles that they have and, and trying to, you know, just make their way through school. And, you know, I was born with a nerve defect in both ears. I can't hear real well. I can't hear at all, actually, which is great, you know, when your wife's yelling at you. It's not so great when you have to hear a fire alarm or... <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I want to talk to you about that. Yeah. Um, you, you found out as a kid, right? You got that. Uh, well, I had my hearing. I was born with a nerve defect in both ears. My uh, when my mother was pregnant with me, um, she was she had, she had a fall or something like that, and then she thought she lost a baby, and um, she went to the doctor, and they told her, "Yeah, I'm sorry, you know, you lost a baby." So she, about a month or two went by, and she she realized that she still felt there was something 
going on. And so she went back and I said, oh, no, you, it's a different time. It was the 60s, right? So I was born in 67. And, and so what the doctor says is that the doctor thought that she miscarried my twin. And uh, as a result of the trauma, my hearing was affected. So what it is is I have a nerve defect in both ears. Uh, when I wear the hearing aids, I can, like, I can hear the blowers out there. I have uh, hearing aids right now that I can listen to my phone on, mm-hmm. like they have Bluetooth. And yeah. I remember being a kid joking that, you know, one day I'll be able to get radio, you know, yeah. and it's just a pipe dream, right? Because the first hearing aid I wore came on would look like a box. A box. I had to wear it like this over my shirt. came on like the same material as a bra. Wow. And I had to wear it over my shirt. And it had a cord that went up to my ear. It was very obvious, like very evident that I was a different kid, right? So, and I didn't learn how to talk until I was about seven or eight years old, really. And uh, I remember to this day, like, trying to focus on adults and try to figure out what they were saying because I couldn't understand what they were saying. Uh, so, yeah, and, that, and so I, when I say that I relate to a lot of the kids that I work with, that's the type of thing I'm talking about. Like, I was in a learning class until I was in junior high, and then I just refused to go, so they kind of let me, you know, they let me slide. But uh, I, I did a lot of extra reading, and that's kind of how I caught up with my classmates. But I still, to this day, like, when we were going through the, we're still going through the pandemic, but it's not as as uh, significant as it has been but when everybody's wearing masks I struggle because I rely so heavily on lip reading I went to learning uh, like a the resource room whatever and I learned how to lip read and so it's like a secret weapon right you know and I, I see married couples arguing out in public all the time and I know I know way more than I should right so it's, uh, it's actually pretty cool it's like a superpower but uh, when people are wearing masks I don't have that superpower right and I, I'm really like my wife has been wonderful she's been a rock and she's been there to like say all oh, these people because I can hear what people say but I can't understand it because my brain scrambles it because it's a nerve thing and it's been challenging the last two or three years have been really really challenging you know because uh, you know when you're in the public and people are like what's wrong like are you deaf I'm like well, actually I am you know <laughs> I, can't, I mean I can hear you but I can't understand what you're saying but uh, anyway um, live and learn yeah, you said, you know, people who know you really well will say he couldn't talk till he was seven, but he's more than made up for that. Yeah, <laughs> you can't shut me up, you know. <laughs> My wife was like, why don't you ever shut up? Yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk about 1993. Was that your best year? 93? Uh, yeah, you won the Great Cup that year. Yeah. Let's look it up. 17 special teams tackles, which wasn't your highest, but you had 10 sacks that mm-hmm. year and an interception. Who'd you, who'd you intercept? Doug Flutie. Oh, that's pretty good. And actually, I mean, we got our we got our hats handed to us on Labor Day, but I had a sack, an interception, and uh, like two or three special teams tackles. I mean, it was like the, probably the best game I've ever had. And and uh, until about two months ago, I forgot all about it. And I some I think somebody sent me the game, and then I was watching it. I was like, I don't remember any of this, right? I mean, the reason I don't remember is because we lost, right? So I didn't care. Uh, so going back to that, that was kind of trippy. And I showed my son, and my son was like, "Man, you used to be fast." And I'm like, "Yeah, thanks. I think you know." <laughs> you watch much much video of the old games? Um, when uh, the world was kind of going to, you know, going crazy there, yeah, because I wasn't really doing much. I was on a, a health leave because I was having trouble sleeping, and so I got a sleep machine, and now I'm great, right? Because we were talking about uh, before the broadcast about rest you know, between games for players, and that's true for anybody, like the average Joe, if you're not getting enough sleep, it's it's like uh, operating at a deficit, and I was slowly dying, you know, and then I got this sleep machine, and I just amazing, like, I crave a great night's sleep over anything else, like, if you say, hey, Jack, come out, and we're gonna, nope, I'm gonna go home, and I'm gonna go to bed, I'm gonna be asleep by 10 o'clock, <laughs> I'll get up at 9. <laughs> nice. 
Oh, man. Uh, 93 Grey Cup, too. What do you remember about the Grey Cup game in 1993? Uh, the Grey Cup, you know what? It was in Calgary, right? Yeah, I'll yeah. be honest with you. The thing I remember the most is that the whole year they were doing a uh, an introduction for the defense, and so they wanted to introduce the defense. And what they did was they introduced the defense with a th- three-man defensive line and four linebackers. And what they did in that game is they switched it up and they went to the four defensive linemen and then the two linebackers and then the extra defensive back, which we were one of the first teams to employ like a nickel back, which was Donnie Wilson. And it was like a ploy to kind of keep people from guessing what we were doing defensively. And they introduced me as one of the defensive linemen, but I wasn't actually starting. It was Benny Goods and Tony Woods playing inside. And then the Grey Cup, they changed it. And they changed So I was like, whoa, I'm not getting introduced, right? And so I was like, it threw me off. And that's the biggest thing that I remember is the introduction was changed. So that threw me off a little bit. Um, in both Grey Cup games that I played in, in 93 and 90, 96, I threw no hitters. I didn't really do anything. Like, I was just kind of there, but I didn't get any tackles. I didn't, you know what I mean? Uh, 93, I was too happy about the fact that we won to care about that. But in 96, it really bothered me, you know, because I didn't, didn't, didn't show up on the stat sheet. So. Yeah, a lot of times I find with pro athletes, they, they hate losing more than they like winning. Yep. And, and, that's and I'm no exception. I remember talking to Chris Jones about his uh, a couple of games that he coached, and he said, I, I don't remember them because we won the game. Uh, he asked no. me about a game I lost, and I'll remember yeah. that. Right? And that's why I laugh when people are talking about, oh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, you know, they were winning games, but they must be the worst 4-0 team. And you know what? Nobody cares about that, man. Like, look what they did to BC last night. Yeah. Whether you win by one or you win by 50, you still get the W, right? And, so, and that's true. Like, Chris is – that's a great example because I don't remember – scores in a lot of the games i just remember we won you know yeah. and nobody cares how you do it as long as you do it all right uh tell me what the cartoon with giz how's that going and and, and how are you enjoying uh, you know what, that, that come out every the game? way that came about was uh, i used to actually do caricatures of all my teammates and because uh, my locker was always in the old locker room before they gutted the locker room and put the new beautiful locker room that they have right now but it used to be offense and defense right and so i was in the corner by the whiteboard and so I would just grab, and I, I was always pretty good, like, at doodling and stuff. So I would just draw, and I was looking, oh, that guy's pretty ugly. So I'd draw him up, and, hey, you know, they were, oh, my God, you caught him, you know. So the first guy I did, I think, was Gizmo. And uh, Gizmo just finally says, stop drawing me, please. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep drawing you then if it bothers you, right? So then we'd be in, out eating in the meal or in some place, and I would actually give, I would do the doodle of, of Gizmo while we were out in Vancouver at Hard Rock Cafe, Hand it to the waitress and say, "Go ten- send this over to that diminutive young uh, <laughs> young man over there." And then she would give it to him, and he'd look around and see who who gave it to him, right? But uh, that was kind of how that came about. I was talking to somebody at the office about that, and they were like, "Hey, what do you think about uh, us making a comic out of you and Gizmo?" And I was like, "And that's kind of where that sort of started, that whole idea." And uh, it's pretty cool, you know. Not it's not everybody every day that you get asked to be, you know, in a yeah. comic. And I used to collect comics when I was a kid, and. Uh, I was big into like I liked I was a DC guy I like Sergeant Rock and you know stuff like yeah. that Unknown Soldier, so. Man, I wish we had more time. Uh, I got more questions, but we're kind of running out of time here, so we're gonna get to the red zone, which are the last three questions okay. we do uh, all the time. Uh, first CFL game you ever saw? Do you remember it? Oh, uh, would have been my dad playing. I was probably three or. I used to go in the locker room. You know, in the old Lansdowne Park there. And I can remember the way it smelled. It smelled like it was mildew. <laughs> it was an old place, right? It was very damp in there. But uh, 
Yeah, I remember very being aware of being around the guys and, you know, kind of puttering around on the field. So I, I can't remember. I couldn't tell you the score. I couldn't tell you who they were playing. But yeah. that's I remember Lansdowne Field, Lansdowne Park. By the way, you mentioned your dad's great cups. You're a, you're the only father-son team, right? No, there's quite a few, actually. There's now more? Yeah, okay. Fair right. Homes so. are on there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Rod, the Nelsons, they're okay. on there. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. so – Still pretty cool. Though. Oh, yeah. It's a yeah. great list and to be on. I read somewhere that your names are, the yeah. way it worked out. Your 69 and 93 are above and below one wow. another, yeah. which is really cool. That is you know, pretty I cool. mean, what are the odds? You know? Okay, back to the red zone. Second question, most memorable football game you've ever been a part of? Spectator, television, playing, anything? Um, the one that that stands out, there was a game in, in uh, Vancouver, and it was Halloween, I think it was. And we were down, and it, was, it might have been that crazy game we played against Doug Flutie, and we were just going back and forth. And I think there was Doug had like 500 and something yards, and they punted it to us. And Gizmo, and they were doing the same thing there that we do we did here, where they let the kids on the field really early at the end of the game, and the kids were actually down on the field and like all around, and they kicked it to us, and Gizmo took it to the end zone, and we won the game. And, I remember, and Gizmo just, like, pushing kids out of the way, <laughs> getting into the locker room. And I was like, you can't push those kids, Gizmo, man. You're going to get in trouble. He's like, the heck with them kids. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, third and final question in the red zone. Uh, biggest name in your phone? Biggest name in my phone? Probably uh, I did some driving for uh, concerts a little while ago. So probably uh, it's a tie between Young MC and salt and pepper, probably. Nice. That's pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. It's not like we're texting each other or anything. <laughs> it's not getting serious or anything. But <laughs> you got the number, though, right? I got the number, That's man. That's more than most people uh, can say. Jed, thanks for your time, man. It's Thank been you. great talking to you. Great, uh, great hearing some stories. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, don't forget to check out the archives. you got some great interviews in the archives. Uh, you can uh, like. You can uh, follow. You can subscribe. Uh, you can do all that stuff with Antler Up because we'll be back next week. He is uh, Jed Roberts. I'm Morley Scott. We'll see you next time on Antler Up. Antler Up, Edmonton, touchdown Elks. James Wilder Jr.'s got a pair. Oh, he's got a man wide open. Mike Jones has it inside the 10. He'll walk the dog to the end zone. Antler Up, Edmonton, touchdown Elks.